Hello and welcome to the Barcast. It's me, your host, Nick Barr, uh, coming to you on a sunny Sunday. Um, my cousin is town, so we're going to go hang out, maybe watch some of the March Madness uh, in a few minutes. But it, it's been a couple weeks since we last talked, and I wanted to check in, see how you're doing. I also apologize in advance because my computer fan is on the fritz, and I haven't been able to uh, fix it. It's actually kind of pissing me off. Um, so as a result, like there might be some more background noise than usual. We'll try to fix it in post, but uh, listeners know that I'm not the most gifted editor of podcasts. I wanted to discuss an essay and uh, some of its themes today. Um, the essay is by David Chapman um, on his blog, Buddhism for Vampires. I think the, the does the essay have a name? I, I think the, essay, the, the name might be Eating the Shadow. It's like a five-part essay, and I don't remember whether each post has its own name or um, there's sort of one name for the theme, but I'll post it in the show notes. It, it's not a long read. Um, and I, I, I like David Chapman's writing generally. Um, he's come up on a previous podcast. He was actually the impetus for the Barcast rebooting and pivoting away from Spanish language literature because uh, I had so much to say about uh, one of his posts um, on his blog, Meaningness and uh, Meta Rationality and Nebulosity. And um, so I think that's episode nine if you want to go back to the vault. And I, I was pretty critical of, of some of the things that came up in that post, although that's not necessarily Chapman's claim. A, a lot of what he's doing is summarizing and consolidating the claims of, of this other guy, Keegan or Kagan. Um, anyway, so I follow Chapman on, on Twitter and he occasionally will post to this blog, Vamp, uh, Buddhism for Vampires, and it's like has a black background and sort of this gothy font and looks like it's maybe from the early 2000s. And I thought that he was actually just linking to someone else's writing because it's so different than his own writing on meaningness. But it turns out that uh, this is actually a sort of another project of Chapman's. And I, I really uh, enjoy the writing on it generally. And specifically, I liked the these shadow essays. Um, and the theme of the shadow essays is basically... Uh, uh, revealing and confronting and absorbing our sort of, uh, what would you say, kind of aspects of our identity that we've repressed or smothered or hidden or exiled, whatever you want to say. Um, so it's sort of a psychology post and it has themes of Buddhism for sure, but I, I won't really talk about those cause I don't, I don't know much about Buddhism, but it, it's, it's, it's a topic that's interesting no matter what. Um, he, in large part, just like he's doing a meaningless referencing Keegan in this essay references, this guy, Robert Bly, whom I never heard of before, but spoke, uh, you know, in praise of this book called a little book on the human shadow. So I actually ended up buying that book. 
Um, spoiler alert, I don't really recommend it. I didn't really love it. It didn't do for me what it did for Chapman. Although because I read Chapman's post first, maybe I sort of had the uh, visceral positive response to Chapman's essay and then I had kind of blown my load already such that the book didn't do much more. So maybe if you read the book first, you'll you'll really like it. I also think like it was a little bit overhyped for me in part because of what Chapman said about it, but also because Robert Bly is a poet and I like poets. And also he has a section at the end about Wallace Stevens, who's my favorite poet. So I was like really like coming in excited and I was just like somewhat underwhelmed by both Bly's poems and Bly's critique of Wallace Stevens. Um, so anyway, didn't really do it for me, but, uh, the, there's there's one sort of central metaphor that Bly uses and Chapman uses, which is um, kind of carrying around um, your identity in a bag. So the idea, you know, that the, uh, as a child, your um, your sort of a 360 degree identity, you can become and be anything and express anything, and then over time, we you know sort of get conditioned to put certain parts of our identity in a bag. Um, what happens is like we leave those parts of our identity in a bag for uh, 30 years. And then, you know, have some sort of crisis around then and take those things out of the bag. And then they sort of uh, have turned into resentful monsters that want to kill us. So that's sort of uh, the, the, some of the stuff that, that Chapman and Bly are, are exploring. Um, I'm doing like a terrible job summarizing it. Just read the posts because I actually don't, I don't want to spend much time rehashing what's already been said effectively other places. But I was struck by a passage that Bly says, and I'll quote it. He says, In daily life, one might suggest making the sense of smell, taste, touch, and hearing more acute, making holes in our habits, visiting primitive tribes, playing music, creating frightening figures in clay, being alone for a month, regarding yourself as a genial criminal. And Chapman um, quotes that himself, and and uh, is interested in what is what is a genial criminal? That last part, regarding yourself as a genial criminal, and it's it's a nice turn of phrase. It has like a little poeminess to it. Uh, it's it's two dactyls, a la Malachi Mulligan, genial criminal. Um, what is a genial criminal? I, I also thought of the Hamburglar from McDonald's and went on a, like a Hamburglar deep dive. I'll try to post that in the show notes too. Did you know the Hamburglar is, has been around since like the 70s and appears in a couple of early McDonald's commercials and in those commercials he's like a sinister like hook-nosed troll who speaks in tongues and there's not much funny about him and then only later did he get rebooted as sort of a kind of red-headed freckled uh uh what's that guy's name from that show Simon <sighs> let's let's do this we can do this god damn it Robin so uh, it's like Simon says, but not. It's I think the two the two things rhyme, and he's sort of uh, a little asshole. He's like a little shit. What is this kid's name? Simon, Ryman Simon, Dennis the Menace. We did it, and it only took thirty seconds of everyone's time. <laughs> it kind of looks like Dennis Menace. Now he's been rebooted as sort of hipster, uh, hipster hamburger. Anyway. So he's a genial criminal, at least in his in his middle stage, um, and and so sort of in in uh, discussing this, I think this is more Bly 
um, you know, what is a genial criminal? There's something about sort of playfulness or mischievous. Bly says, a woman might try being a patriarch at odd times of the day to see how she likes it, but it has to be playful. A man might try being a witch at odd times of the day, but it has to be done playfully. He might develop a witch laugh and tell fairy stories, as the woman might develop a giant laugh and tell fairy stories. So kind of like this twee imagery that, that Chapman responded positively to. I didn't, I didn't love that. And when I was reading more about Bly, and I, let's bring this up because... You know, Bly was writing, I guess, in the 70s. He's still alive as far as I know. Uh, but this book, I think, is, is very much rooted in Vietnam and Nixon. And uh, it, it turns out that, like, Bly got really interested in, like, ma- men's identity. He started some club. Oh, this is what I want to find. Um, the men's movement. And so it's sort of this, like, icky... For me, it's icky, uh, but it is relevant. I, I, I mean, it was relevant in the 70s, right? So he's probably writing the time of like women's lib. And uh, what does that do to a man's identity and how do we think of the modern man? And I mean, look, this is something in the 50s with like the man in the gray suit. It's again in the 70s. And all this stuff is cyclical. I mean, and I'm just talking about like the last 60 years in the United States or whatever, but it, it comes up now for sure. Um how should a man be um, gender roles in in a society where we're sort of, I, I don't know if we've come anywhere since the seventies, like as we just talk about it more, but um, in terms of gender fluidity. And then I think at, at the same time, one of the challenges is just a lot of the worst people in the world right now are, are men acting like men. If you look at our president or uh, some people surrounding him, so, you know, we, we want to renounce this sort of the most id-like parts of our identity that we see brought up, but then we, we also don't want to go against our nature, quote-unquote nature. I don't, I don't know. It's not my favorite topic, but I do, think, I do think we are still in crisis mode, and so I understand why Bly is coming from it. But um, going back to that, that passage about a woman being a patriarch, like, that's, I mean, that's a perfect example. You know, a man might try being a witch, well, that's that's obviously a silly or absurd image, but a woman being a patriarch is not. I mean, Angela Merkel is uh, essentially a patriarch. So, like, so when Bly creates those parallels, you know, there's it doesn't offend me or anything like that. I just think it's stupid uh, to to draw parallels between two images, one of which is not absurd, and the other one is. Um, but the, the, the point of that passage is talking about playfulness. Um, it has to be playful. Um, and Chapman goes on and says, you know, monsters spend much of their time at play reveling in their monstrosity. We've sanitized the world, the world, I think the word we've sanitized the word so much that people think play is for children and is nice, but play can be dark and dangerous and adult as you want to make it. What that means is up to you to discover play is an expression of individual monstrosity. And I think that, that, that last line plays an expression of individual monstrosity was the one I responded to most positively because I, it made me remember that, yeah, play has sort of been, uh, turned vanilla, but play can be dark, uh, sexual, uh, monstrous, um, sadistic, uh, light, joyful, blah, blah, blah. But, um, I find myself guilty of that. I think play is sort of played out, right? 
Um, we talk about games, but there is more to play than just playing games. Um, when I first started putting together notes for this conversation, I was at South by Southwest, and uh, you heard so much about gamification and, and play and product design. But yeah, I mean, we're talking about sort of a specific subset of play or, or a different lens on play. We're talking about something a little bit uh, more meaty or, or, or interesting. And so I, I liked, I liked monstrosity or monsters as, as a lens on a play is an expression of individual monstrosity. Um, and, and this line of thinking as well as it has to be playful certainly reminded me of Nietzsche, uh, who, who uses a word that I loved, um, when I was reading, um, him in high school. And like, I really remember this phrase of prankishness and prankishness of a lion I cannot for the life of me dig up any passages where he actually says prankishness of a lion. And so I guess I am hallucinating that he never said that. But he does talk about prankishness a lot and he does talk about lions a lot. There's one famous expression he has from Twilight of the Idols, which I never read. Uh, and he says, nothing succeeds if prankishness has no part of it um, or has no part in it, um, which I thought was a, a nice line and and resonant with this, uh, other claim that, you know, things have to be playful. Um, but prankishness is such a, such an interesting word that we never use, or at least I never use. Um, but I think it's closer to the, to the talk of monstrosity that's relevant here. Um, the full line, by the way, is maintaining cheerfulness in the midst of a gloomy task fraught with immeasurable responsibility is no small feat. And yet what is needed more than cheerfulness Nothing succeeds if prankishness has no part in it. Excess strength alone is the proof of strength. I mean, like Nietzsche is just the best ever. But it, it was funny. Like I was, I was reading that and digging into the books that I do have access to. And I was like, I never, I never looked up the translation of prankishness. I, you know, if I could learn one language, I think it would probably be German, just for the philosophy. And like when I when I do these deep dives into the German, it's like, oh my god, it's such a better language for this kind of stuff. And so I, I did go deep on, on prankishness and what word he was using. And apparently he used two words kind of interchangeably. One was Ubermut. And so again, uh, spoiler alert, I don't speak German. And so, uh, I would love it if you, if you let me know how bad my pronunciation is, but Ubermut or, you know, it's probably Uber, U, Ubermut, Mut, Mut, I don't know. Ubermut, U-B-E-R-M-U-T. And then Mutvilla, I think I remember looking up Villa, so I have more confidence in that part, Mutvilla. Uh, so both of them share this word, Mut, M-U-T. Uh, and then, of course, Ubermut, as you can guess, Uber is uh, over, which has all of the nuance of the Ubermensch and all this stuff, super over, on top of, transcending. And then Mutvilla, Villa is will. What is this word, Mut, though, in the middle? Um, there's a great post... Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna discuss it, and we'll post it in the show notes about moot. It's it's a whole post about moot and all of its appearances, um, and uh, it's the the blog post is called German is easy. The blog for all who want to learn German. German word of the day: der Moot. Um, and so there there's there's a couple ways to define moot. Like one is courage. Um. So, uh, you know, uh, going back to lions, 
Mut, uh, a, a lion would have mutig, or is mutig, that's brave. Uh, mut itself means courage. Um, but mut is also related to just the word mood, you know, this sort of very old Indo-European root word. Um, and so sometimes German is, is German mut is, is talking about courage, but sometimes it's also simply just sort of talking about that state of mind, um, a, a mood. So for instance, um, and then the, the blog post comes up with a bunch of examples of this. Uh, here I'll just quote it. But in compound words, it's also used as mood, um, conveying the idea you know, uh, of, of sort of a state of mind. Mood used to be the feeling that drives you, the desire for something. And so for instance, unmoot is just sort of a negative mood, displeasure, resentment. So moot doesn't, you know, in that case, it's not not brave or afraid. It, moot doesn't mean courage. It's just the mindset. Same for hokmut, which means something like arrogance or hator. Hator? Hator? Hator must be. It's not high courage. It's just basically a high mindset. High in a negative way isn't stuck up. Um, there is a nice idiom in German, which sounds really dramatic, smiley face. Hokmut kommt vor dem Fall. Pride goes before a fall. Interestingly, mootfield doesn't appear on the list in this blog post, but given all that, you could sort of define it as courage will or mood will, maybe in a willful mood. Um, you know, that's how I would sort of think about it. But if you actually look at the definition of Mutvilla, in addition to Nietzsche's prankishness, it's uh, defined as mischief, devilry, malice, spite, wickedness. So that is really interesting. Like you start to get into, you know, the, um, going back to monstrosities and play and prankishness, but this sort of sinister devil-like property creeps into Mutvilla. Uh, and it made me think of two things. One is, you know, we talked a little bit about um, our president and, and our politics today and sort of um, trolls, basically, and, and trollishness and the role of trolling. And, you know, there's a Mutvilla aspect. There's a prankishness aspect to that. It's sort of turned bad. And I was also thinking about like science and sort of the, the, the gaze of a scientist, um, the, the sadism of a scientist and the, the specimen. I thought about little kids with like the magnifying lenses burning up ants. Um, I don't know what to do with all of that, but I, I, I found it very interesting um, and sort of underexplored uh, aspect of play. Um, and of course, in the back of my head, I still have Impro, a book that I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, which has a whole section on masks and trance and the states that we get in when we put on a mask. And there's certainly a lot of the monstrosity or, or playfulness, but more precisely prankishness or mutvilla in, um, in mask play, um, according to Impro. Um, is there anything else to really say about this? Uh, obviously, there's no so what here. This is just sort of an avenue of exploration that um, that may lead to something down the road. I don't know. I, 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 I think there's more to unpackage. I think just my favorite part was making play more complicated than it oftentimes is in our sort of everyday discourse um, and exploring sort of the sinister side of it. I don't certainly want to inject any kind of moral, like, but the important thing is we, we then rein in that monstrosity. Like that's, that's not super interesting to talk about. 
um, I guess the only thing that comes to mind is as we wrap up is Bly uh, sort of fetishizes the child state and sort of talks about, well, when we're kids, you know, we have this, we're like spheres, you know, we're 360 degrees, we're all the things and slowly we become a little slice of our identity as we put everything else in the bag. And I mean, I guess that's true, but I was just hanging out with a kid recently and she's adorable. Like she's not, she's not that great. Like she's not a person yet. And I look forward to her personhood. I mean, yeah, like we put stuff in a bag, just like a, a baby is born and it could learn all of the languages, any language. But then it turns out that like it chooses some neural pathways and then it just learns one or maybe two. Like I don't, I don't necessarily buy into the ideal state of a person being someone who uh, doesn't put anything in the bag. I think putting things in the bag is an inevitability. I think the interesting thing is staying in touch with those things that we put in the bag and probably taking them out from time to time in a sort of somewhat ritualistic and prankish way um, to remind us of kind of where we came from. Um, I dig that. Um, but you know, I, I just as much, oh, I think the most interesting part of that for me is, is, is those rituals, right? I think of we're born as humans and then we become people and, and personhood is the, is the game that we play together, um, with some rules explicit and some rules implicit and a rule set that is evolving. And so how might we evolve our game to, uh, encourage us to peek inside the bag and not leave anything in there for too long is is certainly something worth chatting about another time. Okay, my cousin, uh, has she texted me? Let me see. She has not, but I'm satisfied with what we've achieved in these 20-something minutes. Oh, she just texted, I'm on my way. Do you get this thing where you lift your phone and then, like, your texts seem to only arrive when you take your phone out of sleep mode? I don't know what's going on there, but um, she's on her way. Um, We're going to wrap. I hope the fan wasn't too annoying. And I will see you next time.